The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. The speaker is Doug Cooper. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. Good morning. I'm reading from Micah, four separate passages. The first is 4 verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Micah 5, 2-4 But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she, who is in labor, bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Micah 6, 6-8 With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 7, 7 and then 18 to 20. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our inequities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham, as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. This end the reading of God's word. Well, thank you, Felicia. Uh, well, as you, you may already know, we've been spending this Advent season in the Old Testament book of Micah, and Micah is really, it's a perfect fit for Advent, and yet uh, it's a unique book to work through during this time, during the, through the, the season, uh, because, well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons I could mention. Um, I think the most obvious one is that it's a very, it's a jarring book. If you, if you were to just read it from front to back, it's a jarring book. It's not light reading. You, you may have noticed it's either hot or, or, or it's cold. It's very intense. In fact, as I thought about this, it reminds me a, a bit of the kind of weather that we tend to experience here in New England. 
Um, and you know how it goes if, if you've been here for any time. Um, you might get several days in a row that are just like frigid, like um, windy, crisp, cold. And then a couple days later, you might find yourself experiencing um, just wet, mushy, muddy weather. And uh, then you might get something else. After that, you like we did these last, what, like two days? You might get these rare, like glorious, warm, sunshiny days that follow after that. Uh, rinse and repeat, right? I mean, this is kind of how it tends to go around here. But then, let me throw in a little bit more as we're trying to just describe the book of Micah. Then throw in uh, the darkness that seems to come way too early every single day at this time of the year. I'm still adjusting to it. I, I, I still don't feel like um, I've adjusted to it. And all that added up, that might begin to describe the book of Micah for you. And along those lines, if you'll recall, this is the way that I was uh, attempting, anyhow, to describe this just last week, that it probably shakes out to be somewhere about... Um, 85% nor'easter, okay? It's primarily made up of news from Micah that involves, it involves darkness, it involves warning of impending judgment, utter calamity, and if you're reading it, and, and you're reading it soberly, it's, it's overwhelming, really. It's, it's deeply troubling, as it should be and as it's meant to be. This is how we should read it. If that's your experience, you might be reading it right. And then about 15% of the book is comprised of Micah announcing what you might say is the arrival of spring. It has these brilliant glimmers of approaching light. It's interspersed with this all throughout, with these incredible Advent promises of great hope for redemption, for restoration. Uh, you could put that differently. You might say it's interspersed with promises of an approaching day of a coming day that will usher in a lasting, unending future that will be marked by God's perfect peace and God's perfect presence. And as I said last week, our understanding of that darkness, that 85%, if we're comprehending it, it ought to cause that approaching light to shine all the more brightly in our eyes. And that light... That approaching spring is the main thing that I would like for us to concentrate on this morning. And really, this is what Advent is all about. It's about us finding ourselves in a long, dark winter experience. Again, as New Englanders, we understand this sort of thing. We haven't quite arrived there, but we all know it's coming. Many of us are dreading it. A long, dark winter a long, dark winter in which we feel weary and restless. And, I'm, and now I'm, I'm talking about the experience the, the, of, of, of Micah's book and of the human experience, the human condition. Weary. Weary with our own sin. Weary with the hurtful sins of others. Weary and restless in the midst of a broken world that does very little, very little, if at all, to kindle any sort of substantive hope within any of us. Am I wrong to say that? And then in response to that, in response to that wintry reality, we're, during Advent, we're to actively look for and hope for and long for the inevitable approach of God's 
eternal spring. That's what Advent is about, okay? Just trying to frame things for us again. And how do we do that? How do we, how do we participate in this? Well, we, we position ourselves in such a way that we're at the ready, you know? Like we're at the ready, if you will, uh, uh, t- taking on a, pr- a particular kind of a, a stance. We intentionally adopt a particular stance of hope-filled readiness and Advent anticipation. Or how about this, in case I'm, I'm saying this and you're like, what are you talking about, Doug? Like, stand, you look like a football player up there. Um, for you visual learner, learners out there, and I'm one of them, let me put it to you like this. Have you ever been waiting for a friend to arrive? who's coming to visit you, maybe, all right? Maybe it's been on the calendar for months now, and you're, you're waiting, you're anticipating. Someone who, who it's been a long time since you've seen them, and you just can't wait for them to arrive. To arrive. It seems like it's taking forever, you know? Like, when, when will the day come? Have you experienced this? Anyone? You know what I'm talking about. And likewise, have you ever then gone to pick that someone up? Like maybe you pick them up at the airport, you pick them up at the bus station, you pick them up at the train station or something like that. In, in just getting there, anticipating, it's exciting, it's invigorating. After this long wait, you eventually find yourself, let's say, on the, at the train station and suddenly you can hear it. You guys with me? Like you visualizing this? You can hear it. You can hear the train off in the distance. You can hear it. It's getting closer. It's getting louder. Um, Might they be on this train, you ask? Could be. Seems likely. The time's right. And now you're beginning to see, you know, smoke puffs coming up over the tree line. Now, we don't really get this kind of thing anymore these days, but we're, we're using our imagination so we can pretend, right? Smoke puffs coming over the tree line, coming over the buildings and these sorts of things. And so what do you do? What do you do now? What do you do now? Well, the thing to do is to get yourself into a good spot on the platform. We fix our gaze upon the tracks, right? We're looking to the train tracks that we might see that train as it eventually comes charging into view from around the bend. You with me? You seeing it? And when we see it, see this gels. When we see it, after all that long waiting, once we see it, after all that hard waiting, that long, dark winter that we thought would never end, it just all melts away. You forget about that. Because they're here. doesn't matter anymore. Because the day has come. The moment has arrived. And this is a good way for us, I think, to think about Advent, especially when things are biting cold in your life. And it seems like we're stuck staring at this calendar and there's many, it seems like there's just so many more pages that need to be flipped. In those situations, we need to imagine ourselves on the platform, okay? Fixing our eyes on the tracks, eagerly awaiting the approach of that brilliant light, that eternal spring of God that is promised to us. Its promise will come eventually, inevitably. And the thing to note in Micah here is that he tells us what we should be looking for. In many places, he tells us, what will the appearance of that light look like? How will this spring come to us? And we need to ask these kinds of questions because as we work these things out, this is how we begin to inform our hope 
and form it, shape it, fuel it. And at a foundational level, what we do know, what Christmas and Advent does teach us, big picture, is that God, as promised in the gospel, comes to us. He comes to us. He has come. He will come. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. This is what the Apostle John tells us. And this is profound. This is profound. In fact, it may even sound contrary to you if you're thinking back to some of the things that we were reflecting on together just last week. Like, how can both of these things be true? You're talking about judgment and darkness. Now you're talking about light and spring and winter, spring. How can these both, both be true? How, how does this work? And so I have three questions for us this morning as it relates to this very tension and dilemma. Because to the extent that we can, we want to understand these things, don't we? And this is what it looks like, by the way, to get into that ready stance, to position ourselves on the platform, to actively wait, to eagerly anticipate. It involves us digging in to what God has provided for us here in his word. And so here are three questions for us to consider together. First one, let's ask the question, why? Why does he come to us? Why does he come to us? If we're such a mess, if the world is such a mess, if things are as dark as Micah seems to be suggesting they are, then why does he come at all? Why does he come? Second question, how? How does he come? In what manner does he come to us? And then last question, how might we come to him? How might we come to him? One more time on those. Why does he come? How does he come? And how might we come to him? So to begin with, why? Why does he come to us? And this one uh, will have us returning to some of last week's reflections, and I think this is necessary. Um, are you, is anybody here familiar with the, we were singing some Christmas hymns this morning. Is anybody here familiar with the old Christmas hymn in the bleak midwinter? Anybody know this one? Um, here's the first verse. Maybe for those of you who are like, I'm not sure, maybe this will, this will remind you of it. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. Uh, this was written by an English poet by the name of uh, Christina Rossetti, very gifted writer. I haven't read her in quite some time. I did uh, a good deal in college. I remember writing a long uh, analysis paper on her that I really enjoyed. But um, what some have pointed out about this particular song is that she seems to be writing about the coming of Jesus. I think she is. But it's as though she, you know, the way that she's writing, it's as though he were coming to England. <laughs> Um, where she's from, and not to Bethlehem, because the climate in Bethlehem is, is nothing like what is being described in, in this poem. But what others have pointed out is that she is most likely speaking figuratively, right? She's, she's being metaphorical. This is what poets do. This is what poets uh, enjoy doing a great deal. In other words, Jesus left the spring of heaven to come to the inhospitable, cold, dark winter of this earth. I think that's how we could 
probably interpret what she's saying here. And what's implied within this picture, if we're thinking it through, is that we, that you and me, that each of us have somehow contributed to these bleak atmospheric conditions that have resulted in this earth being such an inhospitable place, a, a cold, uh, hard as iron place. Um, or to put this in the words of the prophet Isaiah, contemporary of Micah, we all, he tells us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Meaning that we're not known for coming to him. This is, this is not our thing. This is not our thing. Do you know this about yourself? That naturally, this is, it, it, our natural disposition is, is not to turn to him, but to turn from him. This is what bears out in, in the scriptures again and again and again. And so why would he come to us? We should ask this question. Why should he come to us? And um, I realize that we often feel inclined to actually ask the inverse of this question. I think that we've probably all done this at times. We, 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 we might feel inclined to ask the question, well, why shouldn't? Why shouldn't he come to us? Why wouldn't he come to us? I'm afraid this is not the right question to be asking. And so for this first point, what I want to do is I just want to pan out a bit. And I just want to provide just a few like broad, big picture theological considerations for us. And then after that, in our second and our third point, then we'll dig in to the text that we have here in Micah. So why would he come to us? And the reason that we're asking this question, I just want to point this out, is because he did, right? That's not in question. He did come. He does. He has. He will. God comes to us. Why is what we want to know. And a few things to consider. If we come back to the beginning, to the early chapters of Genesis, we're reminded of several things. We're reminded that God willingly, thoughtfully, skillfully, lovingly created us. We have to remember this. And that it was very good. This is what he said. He was pleased. He was delighted. We're told that he created us, not just created us, but that he created us in his own image to uniquely reflect him, to somehow reflect his nature, to point to him. What a privilege. And we learn in those same early chapters that his image in us has been terribly marred, that we don't rightly reflect him as we were created to. And that part of the story is yet another reminder to us. What did Adam and Eve do? And the reason I've got us going back here and asking this is because this really is the origin story of Advent. This is the Advent origin story. It tells us how we got into the kind of situation that we're in, in which we, you know, need to wait in hope because they did the very thing that I just mentioned a moment ago. Rather than continuing to come to God and to entrust themselves to God, they chose to turn from God and to instead turn to themselves. They chose to break out on their own, right? And sin and death entered the story of humanity and the long, dark winter that I've been talking about. It began. And so there's our Advent origin story. You see? But quickly, I just want, I want to point, like, two more reminders from these early chapters of Genesis that I think are very relevant. Um, at this very same time, in the wake of their rebellion, 
we learn that God does, se- he does several things, but I just want to remind us of two things in particular that speak to us, I think, about Advent hope. In the garden, God makes a promise, and in the garden, God makes a provision. Is God is announcing this curse that will fall upon the world. He speaks to the serpent. I don't know if you've read this before. This is really interesting. It's not something I can go into to in great detail this morning, but God says this to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so for the sake of time, I, you know, I'm not going to say too much about this except to say that this little statement here, many theologians have identified this as the very first glimmer of gospel light, of this approaching light that I've been talking about. This reference is, is to the offspring here is the very first messianic promise that we encounter in all of Scripture. So there's your promise. But even before that, God also made a provision. After they had sinned, what did God do? They, they went off into the garden. They hid themselves. What did God do? Do you know? He came to them. He came looking for them. He intervened. He came to them in the garden and they, as they were desperately attempting to make some kind of a covering for himself and he provided for them. He provided his own covering for them. And in that scene, very reminiscent of Micah, we witness both judgment and promise. Again, this like strange tension. We see a whole lot of darkness. We see a glimmer of light. Now, why did he do this? Why did he come to them in this gracious way? Why did he make this hope-filled promise to them only moments after they had completely turned away from him. Why did he do this? Isn't this the question that we're trying to answer together? And ultimately, I'm just going to speak for myself, and I'm going to say, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why he comes to us. That may not be very satisfying. It's just like, wait a second, you're the one that raised the question. You don't have an answer, Doug? What are you doing to us? This much I know, though that he does. This is the critical thing. He does. He does come. He comes to us. He always has from the very beginning. That's what we see here. Here's another way to ask the same question, by the way. Why? Why does he come to us? For what purpose? What's his aim? Please look back with me at Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And what you're going to notice is, because I can't fit it everything everywhere, like I have to spread it out. You, you get verse 1 of chapter 4 on your sermon page, and then you get 2, 3, and 4 on your time of reflection page. Got to get creative sometimes, right? So you might have to flip around. But I'm going to read this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. 
Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. Well, what is this? This is another glimmer. This is another glimmer. It's, in, it's interspersed throughout Micah. This is another glimmer of this approaching eternal spring that we've been talking about. It's a picture of the perfect peace, the perfect presence of God, the shalom of God coming to us, coming to dwell among us. I thought I'd share this. This is an interesting little factoid for you. Uh, for you. Some people find these things interesting. I do. Um, verse 3 there, where it says, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Uh, we actually, we find this uh, very same verse in um, Isaiah as well, in chapter 2. And this verse can be found on uh, the United Nations building, along with a, a big statue of someone beating their sword into uh, a plowshare. Uh, maybe you knew that. I don't know. Um, so it describes, I guess you could say, the aspirations of the United Nations, which is wonderful. It's a very noble aspiration. But they've, I'm, I don't know that I need to point this out, but they've yet to do it, right? Nor will they, I'm afraid, I fear. Only God can do this. And we're, we're being told one day he will. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, just imagine with me if you could. Everyone, we're told, everyone who comes to him will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. Can you imagine that? No more fear? For the Lord Almighty has spoken. The perfect peace and presence of God come to us, among us. But how, though? How does he come to us? This is our second point. Please look back with me at chapter 5 now. And here we get some very identifiable allusions to the Christmas narratives that, that many of us are familiar with that we find in the Gospels, specifically this reference to uh, Bethlehem. In fact, um, this first part that I'm about to read, this is quoted for us by Matthew in Matthew chapter 2 in his Gospel account, um, verses 2 through 4 from Micah 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until this time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they, speaking of his flock, will live, how will they live? They will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So this, this is the offspring that we just read about in Genesis chapter 3. And so how does he come? In what manner does he come? How does he come to us? The, the one whose origins are from of old, from ancient times, these are all allusions to the fact that this one who is coming to the earth is coming to us from eternity. I mean, whoa. And so how will he come? Will he come from some great city? Will he come from some great pedigree, some, <coughs> you 
you know, position of prominence? Will he have like some kind of like vocational pizzazz? You know, something really outstanding, noticeable, like there he is clearly. Well, no. No, he comes, we're told here, he comes from a small clan. A clan dwelling in a small town. He comes to us from uh, some kind of position of, of utter obscurity. Hardly noticeable. He's described to us as being a shepherd. In case we might get confused about this, because this is, this is in, um, in many ways, I mean, this still exists around the world, but in many ways, um, this is a concept that we might not be very much in touch with. So were, shepherds, were they powerful figures? Well, no. That was not the case. Shepherds were lowly figures. They were not highly regarded. Um, in some cases, they were thought of as outcasts, not wealthy, not prominent. This is how Jesus is being pictured for us. God, to our surprise, this is what I'm pointing out, comes to us in a position of utter weakness. How does Jesus enter the world? He comes as a, as a helpless infant, we're told. He comes to us homeless. He's born into a filthy animal stable. He does not come to us in the same manner that other kings, we might assume, would come to us. And this should confound us. Like, what? This is a weird story. And this is what Advent does. It, it, it's what it should do. It confounds us. Judgment and promise from Micah all in one breath? What do we make of that? A curse and a promise from God in the garden all in one breath? What are we to make of that? Weakness where there should be strength, poverty and vulnerability where there should be riches and stability? What are we to make of that? Really, though, what are, what are we to make of this, this Advent story? Listen to how one writer frames this. This is a summation of the promise that began in the garden that I reference. He says, the Christian message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Well, why? Because at the Father's will, the writer tells us, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. That was um, J.I. Packer, by the way. I'm going I'm to share another quote just behind that from Tim Keller this time. And I think that this additional one, it, it helps to pull the veil back for us just a little bit more. He writes this, Why should God come this time in the form of a baby rather than a firestorm or whirlwind? Because this time, he has not come to bring judgment, but to bear it. To pay the penalty for our sins. To take away the barrier between humanity and God. To break through, right? Isn't this what we talked about last week? Last week To break through the, the gate. Do you remember this from Micah chapter 2? The breaker? This is the breaker. And he comes to us in weakness? He comes to us in vulnerability as, a, as, as an infant? Well, how is he going to break through the gate? How is he going to bust us out? How is he going to liberate us? Where's the strength? Where's the might? How will he lead out in front of us in this kind of lowly estate? And here's how he will do it. This is what Packer's telling us. This is what Keller's telling us. This is what Micah has been telling us. This is what I think that the, the, all of scriptures really bears witness to, that the breaker will be broken. 
This is again. The breaker will be broken. What? The breaker will be broken. That's how the justice of God will finally be satisfied in him, is what we're being told. The anger of God for our sin, for our rebellion, will finally be satiated. How? Here's how. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Why? Back to the first question. Why? Why does God come to us? Here's the rest of Keller's quote. He has not come to bring judgment, but to bear it, to pay the penalty for our sins, to take away the barrier between humanity and God so that we can be together. Jesus is God with us, he tells us. The great shepherd became a sheep for the slaughter in order to bring us to God, in order to bear our judgment, our punishment. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died in order to bring us to the perfect peace and presence of God. But how do we realize this? How do we realize this? Or put differently, how might we come to him? Please look at Micah 6 as we begin to close out this message. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? This, is, this was some of the practices that were happening at this time among adjoining nations. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? What does that mean? I mean, I think the thing that we need to recognize here is even as we're thinking about these Christmas narratives is that this is not the same thing as what we get when we come to the Gospels and we read about the wise men coming to, to baby Jesus, bringing their gifts, bringing their gold, bringing their uh, frankincense and myrrh. If we're reading that closely, we see that, that the wise men were coming, they were bringing these gifts as an act of worship, as, a, as an act of adoration. But that's not what's being talked about here. This isn't be, the, 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 the question that's being asked here is not about adoration and worship. It's about atonement. How do I deal with my sin? How do, how do I resolve this problem? How do I break through this barrier that stands between me and God? How should we come? Micah 7. But as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. They're on the, the platform, you see? They're waiting. Verse 18. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Mercy! This is another confounding thing. What is mercy? It's the absence of God's justice. 
You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. This is really interesting. In verse 20 there, it speaks of God's faithfulness and of his love. This is characteristics that we learn about throughout all of Scripture that are are always side by side and repeated again and again. The steadfast love of God, the faithfulness of God. You come into the New Testament, it says the the truth and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You could say the justice and the mercy. And these things meet. They, you know, like, like two people meeting on a train platform. The justice of God and the mercy of God meets at the cross. That's how these things can exist together. This is how God can remain faithful to who he is in his faithfulness and his truth and his justice and remain faithful to the essence of his being, who he is, being merciful and gracious and loving and that we can break through is that all of these things are perfectly met on the cross. In closing, the way that that um, Christmas hymn in the bleak midwinter ends, the, the, the very last verse of it, I think it, it captures what's being suggested to us here by Micah. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him, I give him my heart. I come empty-handed. I come, no, I come with nothing in hand. I come humbly before him. And I bow before this gracious gift. And I say, I got nothing. Nothing to give except me, the mess that I am. I give you my heart. I give you my life. Please pray with me. <clears throat> Father, we, we thank you for um, these reflections that we're able to take from your word. God, I confess that um, after all these years, decades, I'm still struggling with, with these tensions that I've been highlighting this morning. Um, these things still confound me. Uh, I still struggle to, to balance them in each hand. Um, and, and that makes sense, <laughs> because uh, as, as I was just saying, uh, I'm a mess, Lord. Um, uh, we, we are uh, often uh, walking in deep darkness, God, and we need your light to come to us. Um, we need you to find us out. We need you, your approach, your arrival. We need your train to meet us at the station. And... God, I pray that you would do that. I ask that you would continue to be ever so gracious and ever so merciful as it's in your character, it's in your um, personhood to do. God, would you continue to condescend? Would you continue to come down to meet us and to reveal yourself to us that we might know you? And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.